Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. All right, I know you want to get to the podcast, so I'm going to keep this short. Opera Box Score needs your donation to retain its title as America's talk radio show about opera. You can give on our website, operaboxscore.com slash donate. When you throw even 10 bucks our way, it helps us promote the show to more listeners. Just 20 bucks helps cover our website costs. Chip in 50 bucks and we can pay to wax Tobias's back. But for real, please consider a donation of any amount to help us continue to bring you our hot takes on everything opera-related. Operaboxscore.com slash donate. Enjoy the podcast. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, Let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, welcome to America's talk radio show about opera, period. We are live on WNUR 89.3 FM and HD Northwestern Evanston, Chicago. I'm your host, Weston Williams, joined by co-hosts Oliver Camacho and Tobias Wright. All right, tonight we reach into our listener mailback and pull out Doug Dodson. That's right, we have the creator of the Dodson Scale himself here on the show to talk to you about the importance of diversity in opera and why he thinks that Wagner might not necessarily count. After that, it's a chalk talk that's all about acting. As an actor, how can you change your theatrical presence on stage to mirror the music? Kathleen Turner has some opinions, and we do too. Plus, in the two-minute drill, you get our hot takes on everything you need to know from the past week in opera land. And of course, you can call us on the air and get your voice heard. 847-866-WNUR is our number in studio. Give us your hot take on the latest opera news stories. Plus, it is the annual phone-a-thon, so you can call that number, 847-866-9687 to donate, or you can go on the web at wnur.org slash donate to help us out. And without further ado, Tobias Wright, how are you doing? I'm doing really well. That's good. I woke up and it was two degrees today, and I cursed the world. <laughs> that I've was had enough. I quit. I quit. I quit. I need to be shirtless and let my back hair flow. How about you, uh, Tobias? <laughs> Oliver, do you do you want to be shirtless and have your back hair flow? Um, I don't have back hair. That's what he <laughs> yeah. says. I mean, okay. I'm, I'm Filipino, okay. and so just to keep those fantasies alive for you guys out there, it's my or check- ladies. It's my checklist. Yeah. Nice and chiseled, checklist of yeah. yeah. blood. <laughs> so in sports, I was so excited. I was so excited this week because I was searching for stuff to talk about with sports because I feel like that's where I, as a as a host, really fall down because I never know anything about sports. And I googled opera, and there was a little a little sports story that came up. Apparently, a tennis man named Nick Kyrgios <laughs> listened to opera to get into the zone for his recent win, but he did not say which opera. So my question to you guys is, which opera mm. would you listen to to get pumped up to play tennis? Oh, to play tennis or to play sports? Tennis specifically. I don't know. I, something calming because you kind of, kind of like have your emotions like you really in the calm. zone for yeah, tennis. Yeah. yeah, but I mean, like he listens to a whole opera. I can't imagine like <laughs> I, I used to I listen to Marriage of Figaro. <laughs> like four hours later, okay, I'm ready. <laughs> he goes, he goes to the entire ring cycle, and he is ready to go by the <laughs> yeah. end of it. All right, uh, it's time to go inside the huddle, gentlemen. Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. According to the announcer of Jeopardy, Doug Dodson is a classical singer from Boston, Massachusetts. But more importantly, he is a co-host of the Opera Now podcast and the creator of the trademarked Doug Dodson Scale of Diversity and Originality. Doug Dodson, welcome to the show, if you can hear me. Thank you for having me. 
Welcome, welcome, welcome. So obviously, we kind of uh, skipped over a, a couple of points in your uh, in your CV because we're all about the most important part of your CV, which is, of course, the creation of the Dodson Scale. So we wanted to ask you to sort of give us an overview of what the Dodson Scale is for maybe some of our listeners who haven't heard us use it multiple times and kind of how <laughs> that ideal idea kind of came about for you. Sure. Um, well, I kind of thought of it uh, as like a kind of a spin-off of like the Bechdel test, if you've mm, ever heard of mm. that. Um, I like which when you was, talk dirty. Is this, you know, <laughs> kind of now famous thing of like way to kind of rate if a movie is, is uh, actually has important female characters in it. Like are there two female characters and they talk to each other and they all have names and they don't talk about men. <laughs> and I kind of thought, I don't even remember exactly what the original impetus was, but just something where I was like, like seeing opera companies announce seasons that were just kind of the same shows and the same types of singers. And, you know, I just was like, it'd be funny to put together a, a to be able to like score them and, <laughs> and, <laughs> Using those objective numbers, you know? <laughs> oh, absolutely. It's all scientific. It's and... very scientific, very accurate. Uh, I like to say it's infallible, personally, uh, and I'm pretty sure that's a fair thing to say. <laughs> um, but uh, I'm sure if, if you're one of our newer listeners maybe haven't encountered the Dodson scale before, we generally apply these to the announcements of the opening seasons, and we and you, you score things like, um, is there uh, an opera by a woman composer? Is there a uh, person of color in the lead cast? Uh, things like that. Um, but Was it written before 17? It, oh, yes. Yeah, it's not just diversity, but it's also yeah. uh, sort of a breadth of the programming. You know, you can do uh, um, all sorts of those things. And it's a very useful, I think, sort of uh, metric for sort of getting in your mind's eye what opera companies are doing well as far as diversity goes and as far as diversity of programming is concerned. But uh, we this is actually kind of a double segment that we've kind of thrown at you here. Uh, we also have our listener mailbag segment because uh, we reached into our mailbag, we rooted around, and this is on our Facebook page, <laughs> and we found something that ended up being a question. They're like, hey, we should ask Doug about this. So this is a, um, uh, a listener uh, who uh, wrote into us, and he said that he, uh, he quote, loves listening to you guys, but he, Woo, thinks the Dodson scale, he thinks the Dodson scale is a terribly flawed metric. I'm sorry to break that to you, Doug. Um, but he makes the claim that um, uh, specifically when regards to Wagner, um, and I, I don't know if you necessarily remember when you created the... Uh, the esteemed scale that you did sort of uh, put in an automatic minus five points for anything by Wagner because, quote, uh, F that guy. <laughs> That's true. I do remember saying that. Um, well, that was a more, uh, that was honestly a tongue-in-cheek Sure. <laughs> I mean, you can say, you can just say, you can, you can just say you hate Wagner. It's fine. But it's just five I mean, points. I, I mean, like. <laughs> I mean, I, I do hate Wagner. He was an anti-Semite. <laughs> I don't really like his music. Fair, fair. But <laughs> the reason I, the reason I included him as a negative, um, was kind of the same reason that I included negatives for doing Bohème, Traviata, and Carmen. Sure. Or you know, it was just. I mean, and I only took off five points. I took off ten points for Carmen. <laughs> I think that's that's definitely fair as far as that's concerned. But I, the listener does make the point um, that I think was kind of interesting and I think is something to sort of 
obviously the Dodson scale is obviously going to be tongue in cheek. I do think it has some uh, relevant usefulness for the way we think about uh, how seasons uh, are put together, but it is all, always tongue in cheek. However, the the listener did bring up the idea that, um, especially with Wagner, uh, ever since Wieland Wagner um, started sort of the Regie Theater movement in Europe by putting on these uh, non-naturalistic, strange uh, productions, more challenging productions, uh, he brought up the fact that, that nowadays Wagner is supposed to be weird and interesting, and he thought it would be um, perhaps uh, disrespectful to sort of dis- uh, disregard the sort of the, the way in which we now see Wagner operas in these sort of challenging contexts that are often, you know, commentaries on the flaws of Wagner, especially the anti-Semitism. You'll see that uh, reference a lot, particularly in uh, produce, uh, productions of Meistersinger and things like that. So <laughs> not to throw all that at you, because, I again, I do think your Dodson scale is uh, What's infallible. What's the question, Winston? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, yeah oh. Just me and the Pope. <laughs> If you had to go over and make the Dodson scale again, not that you need to, because again, infallible, but what do you think should be uh, included or possibly retracted from that in order to keep in mind some of the the ways the productions are put How in front of audience? How can you make your scale about uh, being inclusive more inclusive is what he wants to know. <laughs> well, this, this is the thing, is that some people... Um, Negative reactions that I have, because I literally just kind of wrote this and threw it up on Facebook and was just like, isn't this a funny thing? The thing that people, when people have reacted negatively to it, it's usually come from like the idea of like, why are you punishing opera companies for doing, you know, they have to do the popular shows to make money. You can't punish them for that. And my response to that is, I mean, I'm not punishing them. I'm giving them a score. (laughs) I'm giving them a score on one metric. Whether a, a... whether a season is original or not is not necessarily going to mean that it's not like it's not rating if it's good or bad. You can do a great season with great and make great art that mm. is just Carmen, Marriage of Figaro, Flatermouse, and Tosca. That sure. could be a great season, but it's not original. Right. No, you're not going to get any points for originality if those are your programmings. That being said, the productions could be original. Maybe you're going to set La Boheme on the moon. Maybe you're <laughs> going to do uh, Barbara Seville with an all-black cast. That's something mm. I've never seen before. That would be very original. So the idea is not that you shouldn't do these shows or that a good season can't include them. The idea is that you're not going to get any points for originality. Sure. And also the fact that because it's like, okay, so you're choosing to do Carmen and Traviata. If you want to save, if you want to add a little bit of originality, maybe you could make up your score in some other ways. Hire a woman conductor. Mm. Hire some singers of color. That's going to add, because the thing about, I originally conceived of it as being about diversity and originality is two things, but I've come to understand that diversity in its way is, excuse me, is diversity is itself original because what we've seen before, how many opera productions have we all seen with a white male conductor and an all white cast? You know, that's not, that's not, you're not getting any points for originality by doing that. Sure. So 
so it, to me, it's not about it's not about punishing a company. It's not about telling them that there's that like that their season is bad because it doesn't have anything baroque or doesn't have a world premiere. It's just like if, like if you're grading if I'm grading it on quality of singers, you know, then it's going to get a different grade. But I'm only grading on originality. And Absolutely. If, and, and if you don't, and if you do all the top, you know, the big four Mozarts and Verdi and Puccini and Carmen and Wagner, you're not going to score any points of originality. That's, that's my defense of it. So um, now that you've, we've had this metric in existence for about a year, have you used it yourself to look at other opera company seasons and, and said, Oh, they did really well on that without even realizing that they would be, you know, uh, based on your own criteria. I haven't actually um, done all the math for the Mets because they... It takes a own. long time to do it. Yeah, they obviously have the... <laughs> Don't worry, Doug, did it last week. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they obviously have the, the largest season, so it takes forever. But just at a cursory glance, they're doing a new handle show that they've never done before. Yeah. Well, Jesse, we, we did it for the Met, and we they scored... 40 or 80? Um, I, I think they had 90 total points okay. with uh, 50, 50 deductions. deductions. Yeah. So, yeah, last year their grand total was zero, and this year they got up to 40 points. So Yeah, exactly. And obviously doing Porgy is mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. a big part of that. Um, and, you know, they're branching out of rubber. So, I, I like, to be perfectly honest, if, if a company scores above zero, I think they're doing fairly well in the grand scheme. So to follow up with that, this is Toby, by the way, talking to you. Um, I have a couple of questions. One, I, w- I want to revisit the Labo M on the moon idea. <laughs> I, Doug, I'm kidding. It's been done. Uh, <laughs> <no>. <laughs> okay, it's been done. What? No, no Labo M in space, right? Yeah, it was. It was in yeah. Uh, Paris. Yeah. Oh Lord. Oh, well, I was just sold. kidding. No. Um. So you just said a, a net score of anything above zero is is actually a success. Um, with the Dodson skill. I guess my question is. When you created this, did you think that people were actually going to talk about it? And was that the intent? Or did you just do it as something because you were like, wait, I want to make a point and then walk away from it? And so what's the feedback been? What if, what do you do you ever plan on expanding upon this skill that you made? And then I have one follow-up question. Doug, where are you from originally? <laughs> so out of nowhere. Because <laughs> I saw that you went to the University of South Dakota, and I grew up 40 minutes away from Vermilion. That's the only reason that I asked. Oh, I uh, grew up in South Dakota. Cool. I grew up in rural Nebraska. We're neighbors. I love you. <laughs> Where in South Dakota? Like Dayton, I, I grew up in like, uh, like Bloomfield. S- no, like Sioux City, Iowa. Is, I lived in a cornfield on the Nebraska side of Sioux City, Iowa. Oh, Little, so like not south- even in the house, just in the cornfield. Yeah. <laughs> like, so like South South Sioux City. Correct. Yeah. That's where I grew up. I, I'm very familiar with it. You were there recently. Well, you were in I Sioux was, City. I was there recently. I just did a uh, rock vespers with the South Dakota Corral. Which is awesome. In Sioux Falls and Sioux City, yeah. Very cool. Sorry, I just wanted to point out we were neighbors. And then I want to, uh, do you even remember my question, <laughs> Doug? Do you want me to ask it again? Because I can do it. Yeah, of course. Um, no, so I kind of created it, um, I, th- I kind of put it into the internet, like I thought it would be cool if people wanted to use it. And that's basically what happened. Oliver was like, this is great. I'm going to use this on my show. I was like, okay. But I didn't necessarily expect or care if anyone used it. Um I haven't personally thought of, um, you know, it's like if I wanted to, I suppose I could put together a blog and, and make it a thing where I scored every company every year. And that's, that's not something I specifically 
really aspired to do. <laughs> you don't want that <laughs> <So>. notoriety? <laughs> well, you've become f- very famous in our eyes. Now, uh, before, before we have to let you go here, I do want to mention that you uh, are also a singer. You are not just the creator of the most perfect scale of diversity and originality <laughs> in opera history. Uh, I, uh, what, what have you got coming up for yourself uh, in, in the more sort of performing field? Oh, my God. Let me... That's the worst oh question to ask God. a singer. I'm so sorry. <laughs> like, it's such a singer sh- thing. Like, yeah. what do you have? So what's coming up? What's next for you? You don't. What's you next don't. For you? Um, you don't. How about? Here's a better question to ask you. How has being on Jeopardy changed your life? <laughs> <laughs> um, honestly, not that much yet. Mm. Um, mostly the biggest difference is that I have a lot of money sitting in my savings account right now. Nice, sweet. That I haven't. Because <laughs> I haven't done anything with it yet. Were, you were a three-day winner. I'm sorry. How how many days were you a champion? Oh, I won three days. That's oh, awesome. Nice. So you appeared four times. Yeah, I was on yeah. four episodes. I won the first three, and then, like everyone, eventually I lost. Yeah. Well, I have a prediction. I think that before too long, someone is going to um, say the answer on Jeopardy, and they're going to ask the question, and the question will be, "What is the Dodson scale?" <laughs> and now we all know. Uh, <laughs> Doug, are we unfortunately we are out of time, but thank you so much for hanging out with us and explaining your system. And uh, hopefully, we'll have you on again uh, and let us know if you have any additions to the scale in the future. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Doug. And that is um, uh, our first segment. But I should remind you all that it is the WNUR Phonathon. This is uh, the the one time every year we come to you with our hat in our hands and say, please give us money to keep the lights on in the studio. A very noble goal for sure. 847-866-WNUR is the number in studio. Or you can go on WNUR.org slash donate. Kathleen Turner's got opinion about uh, opinions about operatic acting, and Oliver's got some opinions on the lyrics production of Ariodante. That's all next on Opera Box Score on WNUR 89.3 FM and HD Northwestern Evanston, Chicago. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. So, we call ourselves America's talk radio show about opera. Why? Because we are. With an ever-growing base of fans subscribing to the OBS podcast and a stadium full of listeners tuning into our live broadcast, we are in the ear holes of the opera audience you want to reach. Want to promote your opera-related service or event? Or propose to the bear-a-hunk in your life? Maybe you just want the sound of your name memorialized on air by our announcer, Norm Waddell. Anything's possible. Drop us a line at operaboxscore at gmail.com for rates and availability. Pass or fail? Here's Monday Evening Quarterback. That's right, we are back on Opera Box Score, and it's a lovely Monday evening. So what's the Monday evening quarterback got for us today, Oliver? Well, just really briefly, I wanted to recap some stuff that's been going on at Lyric Opera of Chicago. Um, They're having a really strange year in that, um, for example, in their La Traviata, uh, the cast is incomplete like every time. Like Alvina Shagamirotova missed three performances, and today their tenor, I forget his name, but he's Italian, uh, stepped stepped down. Uh, I don't know if he's going to come back, but um, Mario Rojas, who is one of the Ryan Opera Center, uh, the Young Artist Program there, 
um, he is singing Jermo Alfredo today, and he's actually amazing. And yeah, I would he's have, pretty good. I would have loved to have heard him. Uh, earlier in the season, uh, La Boheme, Daniel Denise uh, bowed out of the second half of... And don't forget the, the strike. Yeah, there was a strike, exactly. <laughs> and then um, Ario Dante, which is the last proper opera of their season. They're doing West Side Story, but uh, they're doing... <laughs> Ario Dante is he their, did roll his eyes at that, <laughs> just so everyone knows. I mean, I love West Side Story, but anyway. Oh, absolutely. Ario Dante is their last main stage, you know, big opera. And uh, their opening night on Saturday, um, Alice Coote... Uh, came down with the flu. Oh, no. So a former Ryan Opera Center uh, ensemble member stepped in. Her name was Julie Miller to sing the title role of Ario Dante, which is a big effing deal. I mean, it's, I don't know how many arias, six arias, probably maybe more. Um, and she did, a, she did a very admirable job under the circumstances. Uh, great actress, very boyish looking. Uh, that music is so difficult. Mm. So even to be able to sing it is impressive. Uh, but I have, to, I have to say that the soprano Brenda Ray, who was making her lyric opera debut, uh, was ridiculously good, like exceptional. Mm. Like one of those singers that can seem to do anything with her voice. Um, you know, crazy range, great coloratura, um, uses vibrato as, um, or uses straight tone as a color. So you get, you get a lot of options there. And just really, really impressive. She, for me, stole the show. And another thing that happened is uh, there was a tenor. His name is Eric Faring, and he is a current Ryan Opera Center member. Hmm. And uh, he was not the original cast for the show. It was originally supposed to be Jonathan Johnson in the role of Lurcanio, um, who is the brother of um, somebody, uh, brother of Aerodante. And um, yeah, Jonathan Johnson unceremoniously was uh, announced to not be um, in the cast anymore um, mm. without without any press release. They just said, Eric Michael Faring is now singing the role of Lucanio. And no indication no, as to why? No press release, nothing. Just mm -hmm. saying, it's now Eric, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's really, really sketchy uh, what that means. Uh, and the fact that they, there was no press release makes it even more sketchy. But Eric Faring got to step up and do this thing, which has, I think, three arias. Uh, it is a principal role. Uh, and you normally don't see the Ryan Opera Center kids while they're in the program doing principal roles. They do like the bit roles, you know? Sure. So it was uh, a big moment for him. And boy, did he rise to the occasion. Um, mm. Like I've heard him already sing this and that. And it's like, okay, he's a young artist, you know? Good for him, you know? But nothing that I felt distinguished him. And here he came out in his, you know, main stage debut in a, you know, a principal role. And he nailed it. And I That's was awesome. I was really impressed. Like uh, lots of coloratura, lots of anger, lots of, you know, flashy singing. Sounds like my last Saturday night. Yeah. yeah. And he <laughs> nailed it. And like I and the audience really understood that this was a special moment. And I love when that happens. Yeah. When I was gonna ask you when how, somebody gets a break and the audience realizes it, you know? Wow. Um I I've seen performances like that before where it was important and maybe the audience just didn't get it. It's like, okay, well maybe I'm the only person that's excited about this moment, you know, but when the audience feels it and they, they're not that invested in the Ryan opera center, you know, when the audience feels it and they really give back, uh, and we're going to lift that, that musician up, uh, that makes me very happy. Now the production has its problems. I enjoyed it very much. I think the singing 
generally was great. And I'm, I actually like the staging a lot, but you, there's plenty of reviews out there that you can read from Chicago arts journalism, um, particularly the Chicago Classical Review, uh, sort of uh, panned it. Mm. Uh, the production um, relies on puppets uh, in place of the dance scenes and in place of the the dancers that would fill out the the, the dance suites so there's like puppet shows and the puppet shows are very well done and they're hmm. very smart and they add a lot of you know you know lyric that's kind of been a thing that they've incorporated with several seasons really here recently i mean then they do that with faust there i yeah, would those, say faust yeah, yeah. um part of the ring cycle yeah um, i guess so. oh yeah i, I mean so, there, yeah. there's just been a number of different things I don't know if puppets is the right word, animatronic. I don't know what no, it's I called. No, I actually like the machinery in lieu of actual yes. physical. And, sure. I, and for the most part, it's been really tastefully done and stuff that I've enjoyed visually. Well, this one, I won't call it tasteful. It's actually pretty It's pretty <laughs> raunchy oh. what happens with these puppets. It's, well, almost like, it's almost like Avenue Q or something like that. But <laughs> it really... We were gay. Yeah, it, it, was, it was very effective, and it, it made the conflict of... Um, Geneva, who is the character that is sung by Brenda Ray, uh, that more that much more like visceral, and uh, her choice at the end, it, it made it made a lot of sense. It was not a happy ending, based on the Richard Jones production, which I think was first pre- premiered in Aix-en-Provence in like in 2015. That they're doing a revival here. That makes sense. I, yeah. I, I haven't seen it yet, but the the yeah. photos looked very yeah very like that <laughs> um no but i i thought it was great and the cast is fantastic go listen to brenda ray go listen to eric fairing kyle kettleson's in it who just sang golo in uh palace of melisande at the met uh yes and davies one of my favorites in the role of polynesso heidi stober uh very well-known handelian in the role of um, delinda yeah it's a great cast so go for it we will. I'm certainly going to do that, and you should too. But for now, we got to move on to Chalk Talk. Chalk Talk on Opera Box Score. Kathleen Turner is no stranger to Broadway or the big screen, but the actress recently got the opportunity to add the Metropolitan Opera to her performing resume. In an article with Observer Magazine, Turner said she had to unlearn a lot of her acting training in order to take on her role as the Ju- Duchess of Krakenthorpe in Donizetti's La Fille du Régiment. So, gentlemen, I ask you this. What makes for good acting on the operatic stage, and do you agree with her <laughs> her at all in this article? I'm going to pass this over to Toby very shortly. I just want to sure. say that when I first saw this article, I thought it was very irresponsible of the Met, who obviously arranged this publicity moment for Kathleen Turner uh, to be interviewed mm-hmm. by by New York Times. That stuff doesn't just, doesn't just happen, you know? Right. Um, and I don't like the way Kathleen Turner originally talks about opera and histrionic acting, etc. Um, she, she gets... She, she gets, says, quote, you know, the whole approach to opera and the work of it is utterly different from acting. It's all over the top. It's all huge. It's against all of my 41 years of trained instinct, but I'm having a ball. Go on. Yeah, so she sort of makes fun of it, and you know, we've all those of us who are singers, we've had our experiences, you know, with great teachers, hopefully, and you've had to like really dig deep and and learn more about acting. Um, and I have to say that we, the ones who do it very well, we take it seriously, and I don't like when people talk about opera in this way because mm-hmm. there are plenty of other, you know, 
art forms out there where it is also over the top, so to speak. Yeah, I found yeah. it really interesting that she, uh, that she, uh, you know, she's been on Broadway many times, yeah. and Broadway musical theater is one of yeah. the most over the top, ridiculous things. Or even like K-pop, for example. You know, like people yeah. love K-pop. Nobody complains. Oh, it's over the top. You know, yeah. it's just yeah. it's just part of their. <laughs> I think many people would complain about that. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So, I, do you mind? Can please, I please, yeah. So to Toby, just I'm going to read two quotes, um, and I will say that. The misnomer that acting in opera is not important is it it drives me crazy and it long has. So I could talk about it, but it took me less than 15 seconds in my own personal library to find these quotes. Um, quote, to be a tenor today, one must be a combination of things. One must have musical intelligence, a good physical appearance, and hopefully a charismatic stage presence. Mm. Above all, one must be an expressive singer and actor. In a way, the voice need not even be the most important thing. Of course, the voice counts for a lot, but to conjure up a vivid characterization, that is what is vital. So that is one of the greatest singers of the last generation talking about one of his colleagues. That is Jose Carreras talking about Pasido mm. Domingo. And then another quote that was literally two pages later. I didn't have to do that much research to, <laughs> to talk about the importance of acting to the performers who are operatic performers, performers who have performed on every leading stage in the world. Um, and this is Domingo on being Domingo. <laughs> um, he says, quote, Opera, when done in the right way, a great production with great singing actors and a great conductor is the most exciting artistic experience imaginable. But when badly conducted or acted in an old-fashioned way, nothing could be worse. I mean, one would walk out after five minutes. Whenever I go and see such a performance, I feel so offended and embarrassed as to, almost, as to be almost ashamed of being an opera singer, too, and belonging to the same profession. Mm. And so there is an acknowledgement there that there is poor acting that goes on. But I can tell you, I went to Broadway in Chicago and saw Hello, Dolly, and I left that early because there was poor acting there. And so, yes, of course, it exists where there is uh, the old-fashioned or the standstill or the, the over-the-top park and bark. The, the park and bark. But to say that it's appalling, as she says, really is kind of, to your point, Oliver, a little irresponsible to let that be published. But because it's just simply not true. So yeah. I have to say that, like, you have to think about scale. And in the, at the Metropolitan Opera, or Lyric Opera Chicago, right. that's like 3,000 people in the audience. So right. you cannot do tiny gestures and nope. expect that. Absolutely. The, yeah. the subtlety of a natural approach that she talks about d is not applicable there. Yeah. It's absolutely not. There's no subtlety of the voice. There's no subtlety of your movement. It cannot work. Your face, I'm sorry, unless even on the HG broadcasts, what you do with your face is largely unimportant. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. And so that's not to say that there's not subtlety within acting, but your movements, your gestures, those those have to read so that people in the upper balcony. Right. But then you go to, to smaller shows like mm -hmm. the Scarlet Ibis at Chicago Opera Theater where right. you know you're playing to 500 people right and um it's a very intimate story and you need you need to be able to act mm -hmm. i'm sorry you can't just be the type of singer who just sings you know and does nothing else you know so you have to think about the space the piece you know there are some operas let's just say bel canto for example where sometimes the emotion is being communicated for a very long time for like 8 minutes of the yeah. same emotion mm -hmm. and there isn't a lot of you know, nuance or, or subtlety in 
in those words. So you have to really just go for it, you know? And that's how those operas work is when you really, really dig into one affect, you know? So that's how the the operas are composed, you know? Yeah, and I think there's also, I, I think a lot of the root of, maybe not necessarily what Kathleen Turner was talking about, but the way I think maybe an uninformed person would read it, I, I, I of course, am not a, a singer, really. I, I've done lots of acting, mostly in straight plays. My theatrical training is based in Stanislavski, uh, Michael Chekhov technique, a little bit of Meisner here and there. Um, but... I think there's a big misconception, and I think it comes from film and TV mostly, that good acting is what people would call realistic acting or naturalistic acting, which is really not the case because whenever you go up anywhere in a theatrical context, you are transcending reality in some form or fashion. Right, you you. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's You're asking always something... your audience to suspend their belief. Exactly. So the whole idea that you can be over the top is a very dangerously pervasive idea in theater. Um, we always see uh, uh, people complain about, oh, that person was overacting. Oh, that person was doing too much. It's like it, this is not reality. This is a fictional medium that is getting across a theatrical message that needs to be magnified in some way. So concentrating on on someone who doesn't seem to be behaving as a normal, real person would, even in straight theater, even in something that is the opposite of the largeness of something by Wagner, you know, if it's a little intimate play, there's always there always has to be something that is different more than reality. So it really bugs me as a as a actor in uh, straight theater to see this kind of high profile thing being. Uh, bandied about not just for the opera world but in, in, as far as theater goes as well well that uh, that and, interview is a commercial for daughter of the regiment sure that's what it, it was, was intended yes. to be and I'll, I'll i just want to say that it it takes a lot of people doing really really well to make opera work you know like mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. everybody has to be on the same page everybody has to have the same goal the director has to be good the music making has to be good people have to have the chops vocally, but also the acting skills to make it work. And there's a lot of opportunity in opera for things to not be great <laughs> because there's so many factors. Like in a, in a small black box theater, yeah, you're like three actors, you know. Yeah, you're going you're gonna to act the crap out of that, you know. But in Daughter of the Regiment, there's like whatever, 60 people on stage, you know. Yeah. There's going to be some bad acting there, you know. Yeah, there is. And I think from the principal characters, though, I think more that's where this was geared and just before we wrap it up, one of her, one of the quotes or one of the paragraphs says, once she, understood, once she understood the training that goes into distinguishing such voices, she began to fully appreciate the difference in acting styles uh, from what the audience might expect in a non-musical. Mm. Operas bend toward high drama can only be conveyed through vocal ability, which deprioritizes Turner's acting preference of a more natural technique. I don't know that it deprioritizes anything, but I do think that that's a pretty uh, important acknowledgement to say that as an opera singer, that the vehicle for the voice is your body, and that it is tremendously difficult to sing over an orchestra into a theater and then not be cognizant of the fact that you're kind of insanely making a loud noise. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So that kind of has well, to be the priority, but... And Daughter of the Regiment has spoken dialogue. Absolutely. True. And that well, is and it's, really tricky for singers to navigate that. And, yeah. and it's filled with many comedic moments that have to be energized by your physical action too. Yeah. So And the audience doesn't speak the language that the dialogue is in. See. So there's so many barriers to you know the audience experiencing a great acting performance, you know. Yeah. 
I have to say, like, if you saw the the live in HD of Daughter of the Regiment on Saturday, and you saw the one from a couple years ago with with Nelly Desai and Juan Diego Flores, as opposed to the one with Pretty Yende and Javier Camarena, it's it's night and day. I mean, Nelly Desai is a great actress. <laughs> She's <laughs> just true. a great actress. And so I'm not not trying to put it, put Pretty Ende down at all because she's has her own skill set, you know. But uh, that original HD broadcast was outstanding. If you can seek it out, go go watch that. Absolutely. Well, that's unfortunately all we have time for for this segment. But I, this is a good opportunity to remind you that this is WNUR's Phonathon. You can call in at 847-866-WNUR. Help us keep the lights on. 847-866-9687. Or go to WNUR.org slash donate. And uh, there are also all sorts of fun prizes you can get if you uh, help us out in that way. Jose Carreras is retiring. But that's okay, because apparently robots will be taking over opera before we know it. That's all up next on Opera Box Score on WNUR 89.3 FM and HD Northwestern Evanston, Chicago. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. All right, here's a tip. If you've recently started listening to our show, you already know there's nothing else like it. Week in, week out, you get our panel's hot takes on opera news in the two-minute drill, plus our patented segments like Fantasy Fockball, Monday Evening Quarterback, and Crunching the Numbers. But you might not know about some of the incredible interview guests who have gone inside the huddle with our team, like tenor Matthew Polanzani, composer Gregory Spears, intendant Kirsten Harms, and countertenor Jakub Josef Orlinski, to name just a few. Check out the Opera Box Score archives on SoundCloud. Just go to soundcloud.com and search for Opera Box Score. And you can tell us about your favorite interviews on our Facebook page and our Twitter feed. This just in, the two-minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know that happened in Opera Land over the past week. After 31 years and 251 performances, the Met is retiring the Sonia Frizzell production of Aida, which first premiered in 1988. Jose Carreras is done. The 72-year-old tenor sat down with the Express to talk about his recent decision to retire, saying, quote, I know that I cannot sing like I did when I was 40 years old, but adding that he's still pleasantly surprised that people still want to watch him perform. As two prominent North American companies wrapped up their competing productions of Strauss's Elektra, Canadian Opera Company has compiled the epic dub smash battles between their cast and Lyric Opera of Chicago's cast. Don't miss the bloodiest lip-sync battle ever, and you can find that link on our website. George Benjamin's written on skin, the famous Barry Kosky magic flute, and a female artist forward French double bill are the highlights of the 1920 Opera Montreal season that was just announced. We'll break all that down in just a moment. And the machines are taking over. An Alter 3 robot conducted and sang a part of a new opera by composer Keichiro Shibuya, who is already known for his vocaloid compositions. The robot is reportedly capable of changing tempo and volume based on its own judgment in the moment of performance. Opera's Eurovision, the BBC Cardiff Singers of the World competition contestants, were announced today. 
Representing the U.S. are two low male voice singers who both went through Lyric Opera of Chicago's Ryan Opera Center. That's bass Patrick Guetti and bass baritone Richard Olarsaba. And competing for China is, tem- uh, is uh, tenor Mingji Lei, who is a Ryan Center Opera Ensemble member as well. On the disabled list, recently prone to cancellations due to illness, Sonia Yoncheva will be replaced by American soprano Angel Blue in the final three performances of La Traviata at La Scala. Exit stage right. Andy Pr- Andre Previn, conductor, composer, and pianist extraordinaire, has died at the age of 89. In addition to multiple movie scores, concerti, and musicals, Previn was known to operatic audiences as the composer of Brief Encounter and A Streetcar Named Desire. And on this day, March 4th, in 1967, Leonard Warren, one of the greatest American baritones ever, collapsed and died on the stage of the Metropolitan Opera. And it's the anniversary of the birth of Romanian tenor Joseph Schmidt, born in 1904. And Antonio Vivaldi was born on this day in 1678. Well, that ought to get you in the mood for spring. And that is your two-minute drill. Opera class. Sports radio crass. This is opera. Box score. That's right. You're listening to Opera Box Score, and it is our phone-a-thon here at WNUR, 847-866-9687. Call in now, donate, or go online, wnur.org, and click donate. So, lots of interesting stories. I think the one that sort of uh, jumped out at me sort of immediately was this story about Leonard Warren. We just covered that really briefly. What was that all about, uh, Oliver? Toby, you have it pulled up, ready to go? Um, I do. So, Leonard Warren, for those who don't know, was one of like the most amazing baritones yeah. ever, Verdi baritones. And he was singing uh, Forza Dell'Estino. Verdi. And after his second act, Ari, I think he had like a heart attack. Um, the performance, <laughs> it was a cerebral the, hemorrhage. Yeah, okay. the, the performance began without trouble, but things took a turn for the worst in Act 3 of the opera. Warren began singing the aria that begins with the words, Morir tremenda cosa, which means to die. A momentous thing. <laughs> and then he died. <laughs> I mean, I'm sorry, it's a really tragic story, but it's right. phenomenal. What like, a way to go. I think anybody yeah. who's like a serious artist and who loves Verdi and who loves the Met and just opera. like I mean, I wanted this to be in our rundown today, just so you kids who are listening have never heard of Leonard Warren. Go check him out. I check mean, out the Google, the YouTube yeah, machine. Exactly. Look him up, Leonard Warren. Um, oh, yeah, cerebral hemorrhage on stage. That's rough. Isn't that nuts? Yeah, nuts. What a way but to go, doing what you love, yeah. Better than being found in the toilet, you know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Is that that's how you're going to go out, Oliver? I don't know. I'm worried, you know? I'm, <laughs> I'm single, and, like, that's the thing. It's like one day I'm just, like... It's going to be the toilet. Yeah, or yeah. something embarrassing, you know? Yeah. <laughs> well, I always a- think about that when I clean when I like clean my room really yeah. well. I'm like, if I die, I need like I don't need him to come in and find weird shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't go in my sock drawer, yeah. folks. <laughs> <laughs> Am I kidding? No. <laughs> well, in uh, uh in uh, other news here, uh Opera Montreal has announced their new season and we have broken it down uh using the infallible dots and scale uh toby you want to kind of take us through a couple of highlights for you of their season um who did the work on this who did the dots and uh, I, I did most of it you did? um yeah um uh, i did the i crunched I the numbers they're written on skin oh yeah so they're doing um they, they got a final score of 27 is that what you, you i said? believe that's yeah. okay so they're doing carmen so they lose 10 right off the bat <laughs> yeah but so they're written on skin production gains them 23 points and that outdoes 
I think almost any show that we've scored on the Dodson yeah. scale in the year plus that we've they been get doing five it. points for being a show post nineteen fifty, an additional five for being post two thousand, another five points for being a new production, another three for having a female conductor, Nicole Paymont, five wild card points uh, for anything the press release says is first when this is the first Canadian production of the opera. Yep, mm-hmm. yep. And this is an excellent opera. I yep. love Written Les on Skin. It's so, so good. Um, yeah, that's another good one. That that one's also a new uh, a, a world premiere. Uh, say it again because I'm not going to try L'hiver to pronounce it. L'hiver à tombe beaucoup de moi <laughs> is part of a double build that they're doing yep. uh, with a very female forward production team. Uh, they're doing Poulenc's Le Voix Humaine, which is a monodrama for, that one. for a female singer. And then they're doing this new show, a world premiere, called uh, Winter something, a lot of me. Winter <laughs> is coming. Yeah. <laughs> so 10 points for a female composer, Laurence uh, Jobidon. Uh, f- another five points for being past 1950. Another five points for being past 2000. And another Someday five points we for should, being world premiere. We so. should have a contest on the show, Oliver, where we just read French phrases and see yeah. who can sound sexiest <laughs> reading their French. <laughs> I, I, I would not win that contest. <laughs> they gain some points for doing Eugene Onegin in Russian. But as I said, they lose <laughs> points for doing Carmen and, and Magic Flute. Yeah, they do lose points in the Magic Flute, but that Barry Kosky production of Magic Flute is something else. Yeah, I want to see it. I've been dying to see it. Absolutely. This is, this is the so. one uh, which based on sort of the silent film aesthetic. You yeah, know, it's all got lots all the of projections. projections. Yeah. It's really cool. You can find like trailers for it on YouTube. You don't have to act to be in that one. <laughs> <laughs> but the projections do all the Kathleen work. Kathleen so. Turner will be pretty yeah. Just a question for both of you, uh, personal preference. Have either of you ever seen Fidelio? I love Fidelio. I love I was Fidelio. Yeah. 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 I wonder, are there opera people who don't love Fidelio? Absolutely. It doesn't get done a lot, and I think it's because it's ridiculously hard to sing. Yeah, the two te- the two main roles are really Im- Im- uncastable. You I'll, know? I'll yeah. be honest, I did not like Fidelio until I saw a production in Vienna with um, Nicholas Harnencourt conducting. Drink. Um, I was going to say, what's yeah. going on over here? <laughs> well, Maybe you're sitting in that chair. Well, George. I'm channeling George my, right now. My furry friend. Um, friend. It was it was absolutely phenomenal. Uh, it. Uh, I, Sorry, who was in it? I'm interrupted. Uh, I forget who was in it. Oh, okay. um, well, who I would have know? to look back at it. Uh, this would this would have been like. Oh, this I is think seeing anything in Vienna makes you like it more. Yeah. Well, I also saw. Pretty you can also you see like Wiener Schnitzel, and you're like, oh, look at that! It's I saw a pretty pretty bad production of of Aida when I was there. Let's hear a little bit of Andre Previn. Oh, let's do it! Yes, uh, Andre Previn. This is from the opera Streetcar Named Desire. This is Renee Fleming singing "I Can Smell the Sea Air." A multi-talented, uh, not just composer, but performer, Andre Previn was. Yeah, I mean, that's his career is really too dense for us to talk about it in 30 seconds. Oh, we but, can't um, do it. I'll say that one of my 
favorite Andre Previn things were his collaborations with opera singers trying to do crossover right. and doing it really well. Yeah. So Lantine Price back in the 70s, I think, or early 80s, recorded an album called Right as Rain, uh, where she sang a bunch of you know American classic American songbook stuff with Andre Previn at the piano. And then in the 90s, Sylvie McNair suddenly took a left turn in her career. She was doing all this like Bach and Purcell and Mozart and Handel. Then all of a sudden she started doing um, jazz. And the first album that she recorded with Andre Previn, it's a Jerome Kern songbook, is still to this day, 20 years later, one of my favorite things to play at a dinner party. I'm not mm. kidding you. <laughs> Sylvie McNair singing Jerome Kern. I think it's called Sure Thing is the name of the record. With Andre Previn, a standing bass and a percussionist, so mm. good, so mm. so good. And if we had time, we'd listen to the whole thing instead of do a show. <laughs> it's so good. And today on Opera Box Score, hit play. Yeah, uh, we also have to talk about the Dub Smash. Uh, so wait, 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 can I just say something? Yeah. yeah. That Aida production that is retiring from the Met is one day older than I am. <laughs> <laughs> so it's about time. It is really is about it, time. Does that mean I'm done too? <laughs> yep. Yeah, you're, you're out of here. <laughs> it's, that, that's one of like the, it's one of the big sort of remaining examples of the big sort of 80s Met excess that was sort of the brand of the Met for so long. It feels like know? a Zeffirelli. It, it does yeah, feel like yeah. a Zeffirelli. I was kind of surprised because I, I thought it was a Zeffirelli yeah, until I saw this like yeah, uh, exactly. news. In reading about the new production, though, I I really hope that maybe this is a new opportunity for like puppets and yeah. things. Like there shouldn't, <laughs> th- We don't need horses in Aida. Like, yeah. That's so stupid. <laughs> but talking about the triumphant march, the triumphal march, and how like <laughs> there's really only like 50 choristers and they recycle them all repeatedly. That's like a characteristic of every idea yeah. and it's my favorite thing. Yeah, it's just like, it's a racetrack. Or it's, it's like, like well, yeah. how do you, how do they get all these people? So one of the great <laughs> things about this Dub Smash story is that it gives people a chance who are not friends with Christine Gerke on Facebook. So there was a time where Christine Gerke would accept anybody's friendship and she like reached 5,000. She said, I'm sorry, folks, I got to cut it off. And like she does her like, Annual culling, and somehow I managed to stay. I managed to stay on wow. her on her friends. Yeah, but she is the most down to earth, hilarious, and just lovable person. And she has is so self deprecating. And she, you know, you have to see these videos. The link will be on our website. She does it with her cast at Canadian Opera Company, and then Lyric Opera. Um, their cast of Electra also did these like responding dub smash videos and it's like a little dub smash war and they're just great they just will make you smile so go check that out yeah that's sort of an example of technology bringing us all together and the other story is of course technology inevitably coming to stomp on us this clip uh, i don't know if you guys have seen it yet but uh, we'll have the link on our website it's creepy um, it's real creepy this uh this uh this robot is conducting and singing uh, in a very adaptive way, uh, this composer, um, uh, uh, Shibuyan, uh, I'm, I'm probably pronouncing his name wrong. Uh, uh, I, I apologize. Uh, he, it's okay. He, he's not going to kill you. He, the robot the is. The robot's going to get me. Um, but he, he's done a lot of comp- composing for Vocaloids and stuff, which I find really uh, fascinating in sort of a vaguely avant-garde kind of way, even though this is more of a, a poppy vibe to this particular song. Uh, are you guys worried that you'll ever be uh, uh, taken Automated, over by robots? Yeah. <laughs> what if we have a, just a, what if we replaced you next week with a Vocaloid I don't uh, know. Oliver Camacho? I mean, my all my my best skills are things that sound very robotic. I have good color tone and good trills, which can are much better done. Uh, I, can't, yeah. I can't do it. So I couldn't decide whether we're going to listen to Josef Schmidt or Jose Carreras. So I think I'm going to have you play us out with some Jose Carreras. But before we do, I want to just say that Josef Schmidt is a tenor you should all know. 
uh, amazing voice and he was not even five feet tall and there was some story about him and the Holocaust. I think it's really sad. I don't remember it at the moment. And last, before we go, it's uh, it has been said that Angel Blue might be the first black Violetta at La Scala, which is mm. a crying shame, but yeah. at least it's happening. Finally. All right, this is a little bit of Jose Carrera singing something L- from... Luchi de Lamamor. Yep, Luchi de Lamamor. Box score. That's right. It's about time to wrap things up on Opera Box Score. Who's got a good call for me? I have a good call. Uh, I went and saw Act of God last night at Ooh. Looking Glass Theater, and I really enjoyed it. It was a weird piece of new theater, and it was all about religion and and how it plays into the dynamics of our homes and our and our upbringing. Sounds and then they all die weird. because they get hit by an asteroid. Spoiler. Oh, yeah. I. My good Shame. call is that Ryan Opera Center is killing it these days. Like, you know, they're like we talked about earlier, their singers are stepping up and singing principal roles. And uh, this Wednesday, Eric Faring is singing a recital at the Dame Meyerhaus Memorial Concert Series. You can listen to it uh, broad, streamed live on WFMT.com. Or if you're in Chicago, come down to the Cultural Center at 1215. It's a lunchtime concert. It's free. Ooh, I do love lunch and a show. And that is it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. The general manager at WNUR is John Williams. No, not that John Williams. Our announcer is Norm Woodell. Visit Norm on the web at voxershorts.com. That's V-O-X-E-R-S-H-O-R-T-S.com. Our theme song is Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra with opera statistics and on-this-day content from operabase.com. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. Be sure to share and comment on our posts. On Twitter, we're at Opera Box Score. Please leave a review when you subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts. Plus, if you do post something, let us know at operaboxscore at gmail.com, and we'll send you a free OBS label pin. The creative consultant for all... Opera Box Score is Oliver Camacho. For Tobias Wright and Oliver, I'm Weston Williams, asking you to continue the conversation about opera, but not with the robots. They already know too much. We're back on Monday, March 11th at 9 p.m. Central with all your opera stories and our hot takes. Join us then. This is WNUR Northwestern Evanston, Chicago, Chicago's sound experiment. My dear.